Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Idle Chatter. I'm Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer coming to you from Cat Swamp Road in Warren County, New Jersey. And I hope that everything is going well, and you're, you might, many of you are probably deep, deep, deep into your harvest. And some are actually doing some planting, right? Maybe some uh, small grain winter wheat or wherever you happen to be in a different part of the listening area or some guys down south are double cropping. So that's all good, right? That's all good as long as you're safe. That to uh, That is, the, excuse me, the most important thing. I got an itch over here in my nose. But uh, let me see what's happening over here. Uh, well, we're into, uh, into autumn. Boy, that summer really flew by. And it's unbelievable how fast time is flying by and how this year is flying by. But I guess that's uh, what it's about. The older you get, the faster it seems to go, right? So uh, I remember when I was a kid, they used to tell me that. And uh, Well, not as a little kid, I mean, but as a young a teenager, young or whatever you want to call it. Today, they're afraid to say young adult. I don't know what the hell they call people anymore. But anyway... They used to say, oh, time goes fast when you get older. And uh, and I was anxious for time to go fast because I wanted to get my driver's license. I wanted to get out into the world and start to work and make money. I wanted to do things my way. I wanted to farm my way. So I was anxious for the calendar to move quickly. And it didn't move quickly and quick, quickly enough for me back then. But now it's moving too fast. So, uh, hey. I guess that's the uh, mystery of life. As my father used to say, youth is wasted on the young. And I guess there was a certain amount of uh, wisdom in that. But more importantly than, than Cat Swamp Road wisdom will be my shout outs. Of course, I have a lot. Of, I got a lot of pins in my map since I spoke to you last. And these are some gr- they're all great, great people who are reaching out to me. So here goes the list. And first, I want to shout out to Patrick McGowan, and he's from Ossining, New York. And he was a uh, in the in the Marine Corps. He was a aviation specialist, and uh, he worked, I think, on KC one thirties and the FA eighteen Hornet. And he's also a big fan of uh, the SR seventy one, as I am. And he sent me a great video link about. Uh, a story about a well, i shouldn't say it's a story it's a speech a talk given by a uh, i think his name is brian soul or soul and uh former sr-71 pilot and very very inspiring story so i want to uh, thank patrick for that then it, that's definitely going to be on my list of things to listen many many times over again and, and patrick uh actually even though he lives in austin new york now but he hails from indiana so I want to thank you so much, Patrick, for putting a pin in Ossining, New York for me. And then the next on the list is Kathy. Kathy is from New York City, Manhattan. But from what I understand, she did not come from there originally. So she's some someplace a farm girl, a country girl that somehow ended up in those canyons, those concrete canyons of New York City of Manhattan. But Kathy, I want to thank you so much for giving me a pin in my map and never thinking that I would have gotten one from Manhattan, New York City. I know that I have a pin from out in Long Island, I believe was the first person that contacted me. I believe his name is Jason. And he's out in Long Island, I think, West Islip or East Islip, one of those Islips out there. 
I don't think I, I may have been there many, many years ago. Of course, we did have some family out in on Long Island. Believe it or not, Long Island is east of New York City, and it's obviously the island, right? It's, that's how it got its name. But that was all agriculture years ago. So, uh, but it is not anymore. But when I mean, you get all the way to the tip, out by Montauk Point in an area called the Hamptons, which many of you may have heard of, which is a very wealthy area. There are still farms out there. And matter of fact, when I was getting my uh, Unverfirth Perfecta at a dealership in Pennsylvania, I met uh, a man and his son who farmed out there. Quite a big operation they had and had many, many farm stands. I think they ran about 450 acres. And, you know, somebody in Montana or Kansas or Nebraska, 450 acres is a big garden. But 450 acres in the Hamptons, <laughs> that is a uh, that is huge. That's like farming 30,000 acres in Nebraska. So uh, thank you so much, Kathy, uh, for listening in those canyons of New York City, Manhattan. And next one is Mike Werner from Caledonia, Minnesota. And Mike's been a longtime listener to Idle Chatter, probably one of my uh, charter listeners right from the beginning. And, um, you know, he took heed to what I said. You know, you, just because you've communicated with me before, I'm not going to give you a pin on, I'm saying it respectfully, I, I, I'm not going to announce your name and give you a pin on the map unless you want that. So Mike heeded that and, and Mike uh, sent me an email said he wants a pin in Caledonia, Minnesota. So I want to thank you so much for listening, Mike. And next is, and I'm probably, I'm going to, I may killed his last name but i'm going to try not to first name frank and i could certainly say that name and i believe it's ellefson e-l-l-e-f-s-e-n and he reached out to me and he listened listens all the way from norway the country of norway and he's a welder there and uh he enjoys listening to uh the idle chatter podcast but also interestingly enough is that his girlfriend is a drag racer and her sisters are drag racers i and i believe two of them run drag motorcycles drag bikes as we would call it and the other and the one i believe his girlfriend runs a super comp dragster with a uh big block chevy on methanol so i i well i communicated with frank and i believe it's called two sisters racing or three sisters racing forgive me frank if i have that wrong and um i'm hoping for him to send me some pictures and some information about them about those drag racing girls they're real hot rod farm hers right and uh and i was going to put them up on the community tab of my website so if you go to my website farmmachinerydigest.com you go to the community tab and we have pictures of people's cars their farm equipment and what is near and dear to my heart animals so i would love to be able to uh put some information up there frank about those girls you have there those uh those drag racers those drag racers and in, in, in from norway so i want to thank you so much i was so excited to get a pin in my world map now so frank you have the honor of the first pin outside north america then next on the list and i i'm gonna pronounce it joff i know some people pronounce it jeff joff and sally mcmullen and they're dairy farmers in atwood ontario and um and joff also has his grandfather's 1988 dodge ram pickup truck 
with throttle body injection on it. And uh, I need to, and he wrote me a question about that. And I think I was, I was planning on answering it on the radio show last week, but I'll probably do it this week. But if not, I'll get it on Idle Chatter. So Joff, I want to thank you so much. And they're dairy farmers. And I know they have a robotic milking system there, he was telling me. And he's in Atwood, Ontario. And I've never been to Atwood, but I've been to uh, Woodstock, Ontario, and that part of Ontario. And I looked it up when I put the pin in the map. I don't believe he's too far from Woodstock. So I want to thank you so much. And then next, all the way from Truckee, California, which is a town which is near and dear to my heart, beautiful, beautiful town. We have Marshall Hass, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correct, sir. It's H-A-S-S-E, and he's a Michigan boy that went west about 20 years ago, and he has a uh, couple of motorcycles, and he has a, uh, a hot rod, and he sent me some beautiful pictures of him, and he listens from uh, Truckee, California. And if you're not familiar with, Truckee is up on the way to Lake Tahoe. And whenever I, Tahoe is absolutely gorgeous, and the Truckee area is gorgeous. And uh, I believe uh, Marshall had a 65 Chevy. It was 65 or 66. He sent me a beautiful picture of it. But I should have, um, I did, I, my i guess my mind is getting old <laughs> but uh i want to thank you so much for for listening marshall and he also worked on a organic farm for a while when he moved out to california it was and he raised they raised some sweet corn there and he told me that the sweet corn he had i believe they said he had a bricks value of 28 on it and bricks is a refractometer scale that's used to measure sweetness so that is very very good and then last but not least this week we have to give a extra extra special shout out and i'm sorry sir i may kill your last name but his first name is adam and i'm going to pronounce it joachin j-o-a-c-h-i-n and he is all the way from my beloved alaska so he's in nack n-a-k-n-e-k nack neck alaska and he wrote me a very nice letter and said he lives in a very rural area of Alaska off the main highways. And I found Knack Neck uh, on my map. And there's a pin there. And he enjoys listening to the podcast, which I'm honored. And Alaska holds such a special place in my heart because I've been wanting to go there my whole life since I was a young, when I say young boy, I mean a young teenager about 13 14 years old 12 13 years old i've always wanted to go to alaska and i dreamt as a young boy about working on the alaska pipeline so uh but he gave i was so excited to see alaska and i was so excited to see everyone who who contacted me so i really want to thank all of you for uh reaching out to me at hot rod farm or farm machinery digest.com and for giving me the blessings of some more pins in the map but more importantly giving me a, the blessing of your time every week to listen to this dry land farmer from new jersey which all places you think in norway in alaska and Cal- truckee california atwood ontario caledonia minnesota manhattan new york austin new york who, who would think that they would be listening to some guy from cat swamp road so i'm honored and honored by that and i also want to uh just tell you that i was able to uh well two things number one if you're not already aware of it there is a new social media 
I guess you would call it a site. I, I'm not really good with that stuff. And um, it's called AgFuse, A-G-F-U-S-E. So check it out. It's a completely agricultural social media site. It has all different groups. And I started a group, the Hot Rod Farmers. I mean, I don't know how to do it, though. They actually have to help me set up. I'm so bad with that stuff. Thank God I'm a better engine guy than I am a social media guy. But anyway, is that it's a, it's a, a wonderful platform i guess the proper term is ag fuse and you could look them up and you could join and then you could we could communicate on ag fuse and you're and anybody in the world could join it so it's a complete agricultural uh, uh platform you don't necessarily have to be in agriculture but all the discussions all the posts or something about agriculture or machinery or what have you so it's ag fuse and i believe there's some they're working out of south carolina and they were very, 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 very nice. Uh, they actually, uh, I was fumbling my way through something and I just sent an email to them and they got right back to me and helped me with it. But if you're on a social media platform, you know, I mean, it's not a Twitter, it's not a Facebook, but it's an agricultural platform. So check that out. It's AgFuse and i will and and follow me and i will follow you i promise if i could figure out how to, actually it's probably quite easy but i am stumbling my way through it and the other thing i just wanted to um, say that i want to give a shout out to my second youngest listener which is sam santini jr because this this last week uh i was at a field day over in nazareth pennsylvania that was put on by hefty seed and i saw my friend brian and brian my well, the two brothers, Brian and Darren, but Brian wasn't there. I saw my friend Darren Hefty. Then Hefty Seed is coming east, which I'm excited about. I'm also excited about their line of biologicals as seed treatments that I could use on my sweet corn. They're all natural biologicals. And they're coming coming east and having a presence on the east coast with their, with their brand seed, which is Hefty brand seed, the Hefty Seed Company, and they have corn and soybean seeds but no sweet corn obviously but i can buy the use their biologicals so it was great seeing darren haven't seen him since commodity classic a few years back and he gave a great agronomy presentation and uh he had about uh about 20 uh 20 about uh, 150 160 maybe even 200 people there it was great and uh, the pulled pork was fantastic also so it was a really good time and i was i was excited to see little sam santini my second youngest listener and an upcoming hot rod farmer so uh that is where we're at and i'm sorry i'm taking so long before we get to the content today but i needed to give those shout outs because i was neglectful the past week not doing my homework and getting that all together so i want to thank you so much and please send me an email at hot rod farmer at farm machinery digest.com and i would love 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 to put a pin in the map with your name on it in your town for your town you ready so uh what we better get going here because i don't want this show going on till christmas even though we're now just started into fall well anyway what i'm going to discuss today and they hopefully that you find some value in it is i'm going to introduce a term to you that has nothing to do with machinery engineering it's a it's um, actually uh, probably more of a marketing or a sales type of term and what it's called is a is well it's a push model or pull model and why i wanted to introduce this to you is not that i'm going to try to sell you anything i have nothing to sell 
But I think if we take the concept of a push model or pull model and use its basic tenant and then modify it slightly, that it'll become very apparent of the value that you that it would bring to you as far as your machinery is concerned and all aspects of your business, but specifically your machinery and what's going on in the farm shop, because that's the only thing that I have any ability to talk about with any uh any clarity or any knowledge whatsoever so i'm not an agronomist i'm not a marketing guy i'm I'm not a tax man so i can only talk to you about machinery but you know let me just go backwards a little bit here so i could give you some sort of segue for many 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 years i think if i do i may be doing the math incorrectly in my head but probably 32 to 37 years if i didn't mess up the math i was a subscriber to automotive news and I remember the day I first saw automotive news. I was up in Terrytown, New York as a young man. Yes, I was young once. And I was at the GM training center in Terrytown, New York, and taking a class that was run by Mr. Richard Hip, Dick Hip. And I've spoken you know, many times. I've mentioned him on the show. And God rest his soul, was a um, great, great, great uh, mentor towards me. I learned a lot from him and... Uh, just uh, will always hold them in a special place in my heart. But back then at the GM training, the GM training center was wonderful. I mean, it was unbelievable. And uh, I had gone to the Ford, I had gone to the Chrysler, and I had gone to the GM because, you know, being in the New York metropolitan area, it's such a big area that all the three companies had had a uh, training center. And uh, they were all excellent, excellent. They were all excellent, but the GM was just a cut above the rest. And um, so it was right, it was in Terrytown, New York. Matter of fact, you had to go over the Tappan Zee Bridge. And you, as soon as you got off the Tappan Zee Bridge, you took the first exit and you swoop, swooped off onto a side road there. I think it was Route 9 or something. I don't remember what it was. They, I know how to get there. And you actually, the bridge was all, not going over the training center, but you looked right up at the bridge. So it was kind of cool. So, and at the, at the training center, they had a lunchroom, a cafeteria actually. And I remember going to the cafeteria for lunch one day, one of my uh, visits there, and laying on the table was a copy of Automotive News. I had never seen this before. And I thought this was fantastic because I was always been a reader since I was a little kid. Matter of fact, I used to have Hot Rod Magazine on my desk in elementary school. I think second grade, the third grade, I had Hot Rod Magazine on my desk and I used to <laughs> read that and not pay attention to the teacher. But anyway... So I sort of saw it and started to thumb through it. And I said to Mr. Hip, I said, Mr. Hip, can I take this home? So, yeah, I said, that comes every week. It's a, it's like a weekly newspaper. But it was, it was printed with a glossy stock and it was a large format, like 11 by 17. It wasn't small. And uh, I just thought it was fantastic. And then I went home and I ordered a subscription to it and for 35 or 30 like i say it wasn't 40 years because i'm not that old but um probably for 35 or 36 years i never missed excuse me an issue of automotive news and then probably just well not probably i'll tell you when right after the 2016 election i gave up my subscription and keith crane crane publishing is the owner of that they're out of michigan and they were just getting very very political in a sense that i didn't particularly care for and everybody's entitled to their politics and everybody's entitled to their opinion and uh, even though you you uh, i mean 
I guess if you listen to me long enough, you know which way my needle goes, but still, you know, this is not a show to talk about politics. And I, I wasn't getting involved with, you know, it was $150 a year for a subscription. And over the years that the quality of it degraded, it used to have good stuff in it. And it was just a bunch, it got to be trash or rag. Then that just put me over the edge. So I actually wrote a letter to, to Keith Crane, to Mr. Crane, telling him how disappointed I was in the direction that their newspaper took. And after 35 years of, I'm going to go away and uh, not subscribe anymore. But anyway, the purpose of me telling you that is that uh, it gave me the opportunity to learn a lot of things because they had they weren't they weren't really technical articles in there. They were more about the business side or marketing. Well, there was some technical stuff. So, so the, it it was okay. it was very good. It gave me exposure to something. I mean, you're not going to discuss the dynamics of of swirl and tumble in a cylinder, but it will expose you to something. So you may read an article and say, oh, that the you know, engineer X, X, Joe Blow says that this is a high swirl head and it would give you, it would give you enough information for, for you to just go on a, a chase to learn something else. They weren't having true technical articles there. But anyway, but what I did was that over the years, the 35 years of reading automotive news, I learned a lot of marketing terms from the automobile industry. And the automobile industry collectively were very good marketers. And it gave me, like I said, exposure to ad, to understanding how ad agencies work and, and marketing platforms and what have you. And what was established to me years ago was the the thought process of either a, a pull marketing strategy or a push marketing strategy. And in essence, what a push marketing strategy in the automotive industry would be that you keep the fact you keep the factory cranking out, cranking out, cranking out cars. You just keep cranking them out, and then you worry about trying to sell them later on. And what you basically do is you flood the dealerships with them, and then you do rebates on them, and you do this and this and that. And that's actually a push model. So what you're trying to do is you're trying you're actually pushing the product onto the consumer. You're pushing the product out the factory door. You're pushing the product onto the dealer, and then what you're doing, whatever you have to do, and in the car industry, they used to call putting throwing money on the hood. So if there's a rebate or a zero percent financing or, or a real subsidized lease deal, they throw they call that in the in the vernacular of auto sales. Even though I've never been in auto sales, thank God, but they call that throwing money on the hood. So that is a push model. So what you're basically doing is you're just keeping the factory cranked out and you're worried about it. And basically, it's a model that also really ended up hurting the domestic auto industry because they kept the, fa the factory cranked up and then they had to uh, take a loss on a lot of these over the years. I'm not saying one particular year, but over, these, over the years as they lost market share and different things happened, all right? So, and then you went to the deal a lot and there was 500 of these on there and also it sublimely gave the customer an impression that nobody wanted them because there was so many of them floating around for sale on the deal a lot. And then, so that's a push. You're pushing the product out the factory. And then the other model is what they call a pull model. And a pull model kind of has, and believe me, I'm not a, I don't have a, a master's degree in marketing. So I'm giving you my interpretation of this, which is probably 95 or 98% correct. Correct enough for this podcast. So what a poll model is, is almost, it's not really linked in with just-in-time manufacturing, but basically in essence is you let the market 
pull the product from the factory so you make so you don't have an overabundance of product and you let the and you take orders on the product and you make the mar- let, let the marketplace demand more product so and it also, so it almost gives the the product a level of exclusivity so you go to the using a car dealer you go there oh you know really well, if you want one of those you got to wait for it you know hey you got to get on the list they're hot commodity versus hey joey we got ten thousand of them in the back what do you which one do you want so that's a pull model and in lots of ways a pull model can consider be considered to be a better business model because you're not pushing product out and then reducing the price on it. And that's basically what the Japanese and the Europeans did, but specifically the Japanese during the 1980s and 19, well, when they started to really take a foothold in the 80s, is that they had a pull model. So in other words, they you had to either wait for a car or you had to place an order to get one. They didn't have 50,000 of them sitting on a lot trying to sell them. But, you know, in all honesty, to the defense of Detroit, is that the, the big three or big four at the time back in the 80s with AMC was trying to make their business case in North America, whereas the Japanese and Europeans were looking at North America as a market, as a very lucrative market, but one market of many markets where they were selling. So they were, so maybe they did a, a, a push model in, in Korea or they did a push model in Romania, but they didn't do it. They did a pull model here. And so basically to put closure to that, a push model means you keep pushing a product out and try to do whatever you got to do to move it. And a pull model basically is that you are having a certain level of exclusivity. And if you look like it's a new Corvette, that's more of a pull model. So in other words, you really don't see any, every car that is made is ordered and sold. So it's already sold before it's made. All right, so, and push model is, let's just keep making them and hopefully we could sell them. So what does that have to do with farm machinery? What does it, what does it have to do with your farm shop or your equipment or your truck fleet or what have you? Well, in essence, what I'm talking about is taking that term and converting it over to your the way you maintain and look at your equipment. And it never ceases to amaze me and disappoint me at the same time that so many people in agriculture and in the trucking business and in anything but this show is predominantly agriculture but as you could tell by the listeners we have many different we have uh, we have frank over in norway we have kathy over in manhattan so the thing is that but so many people are using almost a push model and it's not a one-to-one comparison, a push model in the way they are taking care of and maintaining their equipment versus a pull model. And what I would define, and you could beg to to uh, differ with me on this, is that what I would define as a push model, I'm not laughing, on farm equipment or machinery, is being pushed onto the back of a tow truck right so uh, that's why i'm laughing and a pull model is getting ahead of the problem or potential problem before it even starts so so a pull model allows you to say hey i'm going to look at that i'm going to i'm going to say this is starting to wear out we're going to start to take care of it or we're going to pay attention so that's what 25 minutes into the show 27 minutes that's what we're going to be discussing today and it's really not going to be too long a discussion because it's a thought process but i really want to establish it because as i was saying 
you know, even I mean, I'll go someplace and I'll look at somebody's. And believe me, I'm not saying everything I have is perfect, and I'm you know that I'm the standard for others to be judged by, by no means. But the thing is that, for instance, like the other day, I was in somebody's farm and they was waiting to talk to him, and they had a plant there, big John Deere. Uh, it wasn't a Max Emerge, Exact Emerge. And you know, I'm looking at it, and you know, the chains are a lot of sloppy things on it, a lot of sloppy things on it. And the thing basically is, I'm saying to myself, you know, this guy's using a push model on this planter because he's pushing it through the field. I mean, metaphorically pushing it through the field and not looking at anything and saying, well, geez, that this is going to be, this is a potential problem or this could act up or this could, and you know, and with a planter, as you all know, when you who have a planter, is it with chain drives and what have you, that if you have, you know, any, if you have a lack of uniformity in the smoothness of the way that chain operates on that gear if it's driving a seed meter or driving a fertilizer or driving something else you're going to have jerks and fits with that it's going to be jerking around all right and what's going to happen is it's going to jerk that seed meter it's going to jerk however it's distributing the fertilizer what have you so so you know you really don't want that to happen specifically if you're looking for uniformity in a crop stand to get any yield because the first thing people tell you is that you have to have a uniform stand and so not only uniform depth but a uniform seed count or population in the field so you know when you look at that and he said and you could you could look at somebody and say well you could you could go over by their truck and you could see well you know the tires are getting bald i'm just gonna clear my clear my throat for a second okay i'm back sorry about that but you know the tire i mean well you could see that things haven't been greased for a long time and um, and so so that's a to me that's a push model you're pushing you're pushing the 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 piece of equipment until it en- ends up ends up failing and lots of times what will happen in different pieces of farm equipment is that it may not be an outright failure it may be a lack of efficiency so so for instance like we were talking about the, the planter so you go out into your field and you have your planter and and this chain is too tight and this chain has a lot of flopping and this chain the rollers are all rusty i'm just making up stuff here right then the things and you go out in your field and you say well geez you know when you're riding on the tractor i mean it doesn't you can't tell that and you go, and, and then all of a sudden, when the crop starts to come up, you have, you know, you have a lot of doubles or triples. You have, a, 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 you don't, you have poor singulation. You have a big gap, all right, in this row and that row. And you put that all together, and it, and it, it adds up to a yield loss. And then in other aspects of the business, or I should say, of the community, is it may not be a planter, it may be a truck, it may be a, a guy who's a trucker. I know for a fact we have a number of truckers listening because I have pins in the map from them and excuse me you know and the guy's not taking care of the truck and it's an engineer we call a stack up of tolerance so so they're really pushing this piece of equipment whereas a pull model as far as maintenance is concerned and just be and i want to say maintenance being more aware of what's happening with the equipment is that it's it you're pulling it right you're pulling it so you're pulling the equipment and you're making it so you don't get to the point where it ends up having a failure or having or running inefficiency so that's why i made the reference between the push and pull whereas the push model in manufacturing is pushing product out worry about selling it later which and then a push model 
in farm equipment and machine would be oh well, we'll, we'll worry about this day we'll worry about when it breaks down and then a pull model in manufacturing is to have the have the customer draw the product out of the assembly line out of the plant and then what you're basically drawing with a pull model you're drawing the greatest level of efficiency and reliability on your equipment and as you know as we now go into harvest and as I said in the beginning, I'm, just, I'm sure a lot of you are in harvest, but some are not in harvest yet. Is that, you know, I would, I'm asking you to look at your equipment, to look at your combine, look at, look at your grain carts, look at the, the, the tractors or the vehicles that are going to be, you know, moving the grain. If you're going to be augering, look at the augers. If you're using a pon- some sort of, uh, uh, a pony motor with small engine to drive an auger what have you if you're running stuff off a pto shaft let's say an auger you're augering some some grain uh and the thing is that you know if it has crossbar universal joints what do they look like you know you're running so there's there's many many things that could make this a pull model versus a push model but what i wanted to do is uh, elaborate more upon that and the thing is that when it comes to push and pull in the farm shop then the most important thing that i have come to see is not being a stranger so to your engine to your equipment to all aspects of it is that a to me just like a good farmer will be out in the field and you'll see him going checking the crops and walking through the field and looking at this and looking at that looking at the soil looking at the plants picking the picking you know know, rolling the leaves over see if there's any bugs or insects underneath the leaves then this is all through the growing season he doesn't do this five minutes just before he harvests this is all throughout the growing season and then so as you know a lot of people say the most important thing in your farm field is your shadow in the field well the same thing is happening with your equipment you know you you could tell if the hood doesn't open easily that's a pretty good indication you look under there so so the first thing that i want to say converting your push model with your farm equipment to a pull model is that you need to spend time looking at things you need to spend time studying it and do you remember there used to be a show on television and i'm not a big tv guy but i used to watch it because i used to like to see their procedure i think it was called csi crime scene investigation they were forensic people now everything is forensic forensic this forensic that but what have you and the thing is that but you know you they would study something they would look at something they would study something and that's what a pull model would make you be with your equipment so so if you so let's take a tractor for example so to a to a attach a pull model of maintenance to this tractor is that what you would do is you would open the hood you would look around you would you would look at the belts you look at the hoses hey geez that looks like there's a little bit of dust collecting there you know we are we starting to leak some oil there you know we'd look at the we'd look at the radiator we would you know we would maybe touch something with our hands we would go around we would look at the uh any type of you know suspension joint we look at a grease joint the zerk fitting for instance when i cut my corn my corn down a couple of weeks ago and uh i noticed i said geez what happened to the zerk fitting on the rear under well there's a there's a uh a guide wheel on the back there. i don't think they call it a guide wheel i forgot the term they use on the back and it rides up and down in a sleeve like a pipe and it always was a grease fitting said, what the heck happened to the grease fitting all right so i have to, so i have to put a new grease fitting in there and grease it before i go into the field so 
the thing is that you need to look at things you need to study things and you know this is not as burdensome as it first sounds but you need to be aware because if you never look under the hood if you never look under the piece of equipment if you never if you never look at the grease fittings you never look at the, the drive shafts on your pto operated equipment you never look at your tire pressure then the thing makes you have a combine you never look at the the, the the feeder house you never look at the chains you never look at the belts right you need to look at this stuff and, I, and you know you could look and then you could look a quick glance is not a look and it's time for, and, and by doing all of that you're taking it and you're going from pushing the equipment into something breaks and we all know in agriculture, and I've always said this, it's a lot like like emergency equipment, whether it's a, a fire, a, a piece of fire apparatus, whether it's an ambulance, whether it's a police car, is that it has to go when it has to go. And if you use a push model type of mentality, is that yes, you're going to go until it, until it doesn't go. And we really want to avoid that because not only is it going to possibly cause you more problems, all right, as far as more expense is concerned, but it's going to cost you downtime. And obviously downtime is expense, but in lots of parts of the country, you need to get this crop out. And, and specifically during the planting season, even though we're in harvest, because it's a lot of guys are planting. You want to catch that optimum window for planting, whatever that may be in your area and for your crop. But the thing is that by prior to that, using a pole model and looking at it and saying, hey, this is what's going on with this piece of equipment and and I see this, I don't like this, I'm going to get ahead of this. I don't like the way this belt looks. So, so that's the first thing that I want to tell you that you need to do. So you need to look at everything, you need to examine everything. And that may mean getting underneath the piece of equipment on a creeper or crawling underneath it, maybe getting on top of it, what have you. The other area when we're looking at push versus pull is that, and I've said this many, many times ad nauseum on the podcast, I almost feel guilty about saying it, but I think it can never be told enough times is that you need to be able to especially with all the electronics on the equipment you need to have a visual you need to have a a mindset of knowing where the ground circuits are on a piece of equipment and specifically a piece of modern equipment with a lot of electronics on it and you need to look at those ground circuits and you know for the most part the majority of them except maybe something up underneath the dashboard they're not there's not 10 million of ground circuits there's not 50 of them is that so it's not like grease fittings but you need to be able to identify them and look at them and then see and you know and as i said to you also many times over is that a visual is not a good indicator of the capacity of a ground circuit that you need to do a voltage drop test on it but the fact of the matter is is that the visual is the first place you go right they're just like with a with a tire you come out the tire is flat then you know you have to look for look for a leak if you say geez that tire looks a little bit low let me put a pressure put a tire pressure gauge man it is five pounds low then you know you have some sort of issue so the first step is a visual but you need to really really be uh, be familiar with where the ground circuits are on your equipment then it's very 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 important and you and you so you may say i got older equipment hot rod i don't care well they're just as important as older equipment as far as the starting is concerned and the running is concerned maybe it doesn't have all this advanced electronics or controls on it but the fact of the matter is is that if it doesn't start and run then what good is it right 
So, uh, so you need to you need to be very familiar with that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's basically not pushing. You're pulling. You're you're looking at things, uh, making sure that everything is right there. And the third area where I feel that people really really lose it in this push-pull model of maintenance. And this is on all pieces of equipment, not just things with, with, with engines on them, is that is the, the, the health, I should say, of the fluids. And the health of the fluids, and then again, you know, the first thing to do is a visual. Obviously, check the level, but you want to smell the fluid. You want to look at the fluid. You know, if you if you're putting, if you know that you know automatic transmission fluid is pink in color and yours is black or very very dark, well, that's a good indicator that something is not right. And the not right may be just that the fluid is the fluid is spent. You just just consumed it, not consumed it as far as its volume is concerned, but consumed as far as its chemical ability to be a fluid. And you know that's another thing that I you know that I see that you go and you pull you, you pull a dipstick out on something, or you and and the the fluid. The fluid is, is really is the lifeblood of, of equipment, and it's not just with engines; it's with transmissions, it's with hydraulics. There's there's a, a lot of different aspects of fluids that are used on equipment, and they could be used for cooling, they could be used for lubrication, they could be used for what we would call a working fluid. So, on a hydraulic system, a working of the fluid is actually a working fluid; it accomplishes work. It moves a hydraulic piston in an automatic transmission. It's a working fluid, all right, because it actually engages the clutches and shifts the gears. So the thing is, yes, the power is transmitted, you know, through the planetary unit in automatic transmission, and the clutches engage it, but the gauge, but the clutches are engaged through a working fluid. So that's another area where people really, really, really neglect things. But what I want you to do, or I'm asking you to do, probably a better word is suggesting, because I have no ability to have you do anything, is that I I want you to look at it and just like the the auto manufacturer and as I get ready to close here with this push-pull model, because there's really not much to it, just you thinking about it. It's not like you're talking about the gas exchange process and the cylinder. Is that if you look at and use the auto companies as an example, and because they're a textbook example of doing many things wrong. And the thing is that if you look at companies that had a push model that kept the factories going and had to put a lot of money on the hood to uh, to try to sell a vehicle and then also gave a customer subliminal message, even if the customer realized that nobody wants these things, there's 10 million of them laying in a dealer's lot. Historically, those are the companies that lost money and eventually went out of business. If you look at the companies that had a pull model where they, they, they ran a tighter ship. And I'm not going to say a pull model has no, no potential problem areas as far as marketing is concerned, all right? Because, I mean, you could say, well, I lost potential sales with a pull model as far as car sales or equipment sales because it wasn't available. So the guy went across the street to the other brand because he had 50 of them there. And I'm not going to deny that. But what, you know, my whole mantra with this show, it's not what you make, it's what you keep that counts, 
So yes, the thing is that so on a pole model, as far as an auto plant is concerned, you could say, well, maybe we lost some sales, but I do not know of a pole model based auto company that was not profitable and went out of business. All right. And, you know, companies go out of business like farms go out of business for a multitude of reasons. I mean, you could have the best the best model in the world and still go out of business because of outside influences, for instance, like the economy crashing or a, a, a earthquake or a tornado or, some, or something like that. But the fact of the matter is, is that that and the same thing happens with agriculture when i look at when i look at a farmer and i look at his operation and i'm not looking at it to critique it but the fact of the matter is that the person who uses a push model as far as their maintenance or their and it's like i say it's a mindset it's it really is a, it's a, you know it's it's a it's a terrible mindset that they don't see any value in this is that 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 is the person that is that is always behind the eight ball financially you know when the markets are good he's never as good as he should be his 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 balance sheet when the markets are bad he's actually very very bad because he has a lot of equipment failures or downtime that's eroding whatever little profit margin he has and the thing is that and you know it happens time and time again but the fact of the matter is is they don't change and i want you to change and if you look at the pole model guy the guy who takes care of his equipment the guy who gets ahead of things that he may yes he may still go out of business i'm not going to deny that but it's not going to be because his equipment bankrupted him or it's not going to be because he missed the optimum planting window because he didn't look metaphorically underneath the hood and take care of things ahead of time so the fact is that you know and, and yeah with rare exception you'll have somebody who does everything wrong and it turns out right and that guy should probably buy a lottery ticket but the reality is most times in life if you don't give attention to detail and attention to things the odds are against you as far as being successful is concerned and um and the machine you know the machinery aspect of agriculture or trucking or or whatever i mean you 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 know we could take frank who's a welder in norway you know if he doesn't take care of his welding equipment if he doesn't have his well i don't know what kind of welder i mean i mean i don't know what kind of welding he does whether he's using sticks or oxyacetylene or whatever he's doing but let's say he's a stick welder i mean use that if he doesn't have welding rods or if he has the wrong welding rods or he's got the cheap welding rods or he doesn't take care of his welder right then the thing basically is is that he's not going to have a good level of productivity and you know as they get ready to close this year as we go into harvest we'll go into planting because interestingly enough in my audience we have people that are planting and and people that are harvesting at the same time uh and lots of times on the same farm that's happening so the thing is that you know when you're in the field with the plant or in the field with the combine that's not the time now to say well hey i'm going to go do a pole model instead of a push model well it's probably a little bit too late and you got to you know hopefully god willing you're you know you could keep going not have any problems but keep in mind is that you know it's like anything it's not it's not it's like not brushing your teeth it's like not putting good fertility down on the crop it's it's like neglecting anything anything in life is that eventually comes back to bite you and it bites very very hard and it bites very expensively 
And the thing is that, you know, talk about the optimum planting when they're just using it as an example, is that I got my cover crop down. It was, you know, triticale, crimson clover, and tillage radish. Got that from uh, John Lima. He's a dealer for King's Agri-Seed Custom Blend. And I got the gun. I said to my wife, I cut the corn down. And I said, because I spin it on. I said, I got to get this on. And she said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, I got to get this on. And she was asking about something. I don't know. Nothing to do with the farm. I said, I, said, I don't care. I'm going out in the field. I said, we'll worry about that later. We'll worry about tomorrow. I got to get this on because it's supposed to rain tomorrow or tonight and if i could get this on because it's laying on the ground i can get some moisture i could get that i could get that cover crop up and i could take advantage of having not having a bountiful harvest because of all things i said in the past but have my cover crop in the earliest as i possibly the earliest i've ever had it in september 15th and uh and get more growth on that cover crop. And if we do not get an early frost, then I'll have a good stand on the cover crop. And as I always say, you know, cat swamp road is next year country. And next year I could have, you know, a better chance of having a, a good crop, a profitable, profitable crop. And then if I didn't do that, well, we did, we got 0.76 inches of rain that night. And then the next couple of days after that, we had a nice heavy fog in the morning. And this is the first time the triticale beat the tillage radish up it always beats the crimson clover but that usually the 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 tillage radish is starting to germinate before the triticale and within four days i had an inch and a half tall tall triticale in my field with a with a broadcast spread which if i my equipment were not ready and i'm not saying that infallible that something could have broken but if i didn't take care of that ahead of time and i said i'm doing this to the tractor we're done with harvest we're doing this we're doing this here we're getting the cover crop on and roll like that then i would not have a cover crop standing right now and the idea of that cover crop standing right now is is potentially positioning me for a better crop next year so i spent the money for the seed spent the money for the fuel spent the money for everything and if i didn't get it on that day and i'm like and if something would have happened that i did not get it on unforeseen you can't predict everything but you know you it's just like you're looking at your gas gauge right and you say no the gas gauge is on empty and you see a gas station oh, i'll wait for the next one i don't like that one it's two cents too high and then you run out of gas then that's what we're doing in agriculture that's what i see people doing in a trucking industry i see people doing in so many businesses with their equipment and they're taking and they're doing a push mentality of well we'll keep pushing this until something happens and then we'll cry like a stuck pig how everything is against me how i got bad luck and everything and they won't look in the mirror but you know i'm from new jersey you know i'm a straight shooter and the majority of time the majority not saying every time the majority of time that it is because you did a push model as far as your equipment is concerned. You didn't look under the hood metaphorically. You didn't study things. You didn't put eyeballs on it. You were a farmer who was not out in the field looking at his crop, and you will never, ever be in the winner's circle that way. And if you happen to get into the winner's circle, thank God for it because you got there by his grace and by luck that time, and you better pay attention and see what it looks like because with your mindset, you're not going there again.
All right, so I may be being a little bit tough on you, and you know that I am tough, but it's tough love, and I don't, like I said, I'm repeating, I don't care what business you're in, so, you know, if Kathy drives a taxi cab in Manhattan, she better take care of that taxi cab, all right, if she wants it to be profitable, you know, so the thing is that we need to have the proper mindset, so hey, argue with me, give me, call me names, Hot Rod Farmer at FarmMachineryDigest.com, so now we're going to bring Tex Rubinowitzin from Ripsaw Records, come on in Tex, we're going to get ready for the toolbox test. Thank you so much, Tex. Thank you, thank you so much. Good hearing you again, buddy. All righty, here's our toolbox test question. You ready? You got your thinking cap on, or did you plead the thinking cap someplace else? And you didn't get to push my I'm going to go look for that thinking cap, right? All right. You are in the market for a new pickup truck and notice that the liter- literature states that some models have two sets of gasoline injectors. One is direct injection, DI, and the other set is port injection, PFI. You have never heard of this before. Why two sets of fuel injectors on a gasoline engine? All right, good question. So Farmer A says that you must have read the brochure incorrectly. The engine would run too rich that way. Farmer B tells you it is to keep the intake valves clean. Farmer C is sure that these new engines make so much power that each cylinder needs two injectors. And Farmer D thinks he read that it is for reliability. If one set fails, that the other one will still allow the engine to run. So that is what we are talking about. Why do so many of these new gasoline engines have two sets of injectors? So a four-cylinder would have eight injectors, an eight-cylinder would have 16 injectors, a six-cylinder would have 12 injectors, all right? So that basically is where we're at. So you think about that while I bring you the uh, the uh the uh, special delivery letter. So this person, and it's Anthony DeLisi from Ontario, Canada. So he says, hi, Ray, was hoping you could help me as as I own a 1987 Monte Carlo SS with the factory L69 305 small block motor in it. The car has only 15,000 miles and is completely stock and unmolested. The problem is at highway speeds, the car pings badly even under light acceleration. As an experiment, I unplug the mixture control solenoid so the needle goes to full rich. This solves the problem as the ping is gone, but then my gas mount suffers considerably, and I've been told leaving the MC mixture control solenoid unplugged will eventually ruin the catalytic converter. The carburetor still has all the factory tamper-proof plugs in place, so it has never been touched. The best gas I have access to is 91-octane ethanol-free. I have spoken to many people, and they all say to take the carb off and break the plugs off the base of the carburetor and richen it up that way, as these cars were known to leave the factory with lean conditions in order to pass emissions at the time. I was wondering if it is possible the mixture control solenoid may need adjustment instead. 
I am not sure if they were known to go out of adjustment. I can hear the needle ticking when I turn the ignition on. Also, I have no engine codes, and I did put a new oxygen sensor in, hoping that would solve the issue, but made no difference. Any thoughts would be greatly appreciated. All right, we got a, a lot going on here, and I did speak to uh, to Anthony over the telephone. I sent him an email, but I wanted to share his letter with you. All right, first of all, I I said to Anthony is that, yes, that's a feedback carburetor, so it has an electronic a mixture control solenoid, and that controls the air-fuel ratio. Now, I said to him that for the most part, and I, I over the years, I made a lot of money working on those carburetors. I used to love those carburetors. If you have them set up properly, they're, they're fantastic. You look at the key and the thing starts, all right? And the thing is that... Uh, historically they did come they were out of adjustment uh i have my own theory on why they were out of adjustment but they were out of adjustment but the thing is that based upon what he had told me and what his letter said is that i would say that two that well the main thing yes i the carburetor would be have to be extremely lean and at part throttle light load it would be very hard for it to be that lean because that's the range of closed loop meaning it's going to look off the oxygen sensor and look at the oxygen sensor and he said to me it runs perfectly other than that and and control the mixture so it's it's not impossible for it to be on the lean side but for it to be on the lean side enough to have it cause an abnormal combustion event and start the ping with a closed loop fuel control system i doubt that very much i'm sure it's not adjusted a hundred percent but he's chasing a detonation problem a pinging problem so i told him he needs to check the egr valve and he said he did all right so that's for your benefit as far as the audience is concerned if the egr valve is not functioning and functioning means not only the valve lifting but the eat the exhaust gas passages in the intake manifold being clear and pl- and passing enough egr the good way for you to tell us is to have the engine idle take a rag or a thermal glove and locate the egr valve and push the pint or push the diaphragm all the way up so it's passing egr at idle there's no egr at idle and the engine should run very very rough or even maybe even stall but at least run very rough if there's not much degradation in the way the engine runs then that egr valve passages are plugged but if the egr valve is not physically lifting because of its vacuum control is not working or if it is physically lifting but the passages are plugged it's going to ping it's going to have an abnormal combustion event at part throttle light load when it would want a lot of eg when it would want egr as an as a uh, to cool down the, the the cylinders meaning the charge in the cylinder not the liquid coolant temperature so that's the other thing the other thing that i would say and he told me he felt that the job valve was functioning is that i personally think when i look at a 1987 car so that's what so three would be 90 30 34 year old car with 15,000 miles on it i would say it has a lot of cold starts it has a lot of idling on it a lot of short trip cycles i mean you put more than 15,000 miles on a bicycle from 1987 so the thing is that i would tend to think that even though the egr passage is based upon his assessment and not plugged i think the piston crowns are loaded with carbon and i think they're loaded with carbon and you put that to 
together with a slightly lean or misadjusted carburetor and you also put it together now in, in theory that engine should run on 87 octane but when i spoke to anthony i asked him i'm not familiar with and anybody up in canada that listens please tell me because in the states we use what's called an aki anti-knock index which is the r plus m divided by two it's the average of the research and the motor octane and the thing is that i now he's using this 91 ethanol free gas he says they have 93 or 94 octane fuel up there but it has 10 percent ethanol and he was afraid to put it. i said don't be afraid to put it in we used ethanol 10 percent ethanol gas for over 20 years here in new jersey with no problem whatsoever so in essence what i think is happening i think he has a stack up of tolerances i think he's got a lot of carbon on the piston crown from a lot of cold cold starts idling short trips i think that the carburetor is probably a little bit misadjusted all right and and i think also that the fuel that he's using now if it's he says it does not ping at wide open throttle it pings at par throttle light load so if you remember from my show a few weeks back that would mean that the research the regular driving octane is low because if it's an aki if they have that up in canada where it's an average then it sounds like it's not the motor octane it's the research so i think if you put that all together that it's very octane intolerant that engine even though it should not be and i tend to think it's probably more number one issue loaded with carbon on the piston crown number two the carburetor misadjusted slightly and number three being that the that it's making it have a desire for more octane than it needs and if he says he has sunoco up there with 94 octane i said put a tank full of that in there and see how it is and you may just want to go i said if you if you you'll and and even throw a can of octane boost in if you want to try it but with fifteen thousand miles in 33 years i don't think you're going to go broke putting a better gas in it but i really think it's car i really have to say it's probably 95 percent of his problem is carbon up pistons which i mean carbon on the piston crown and what that's going to do is that's going to hold heat in the piston and that heat is going to want to and the gasoline is auto igniting because it's beyond the heat range of uh of its ability to resist it so all right so that's basically it and if i hear any more from him he's going to get back to me i told him those suggestions um he may not get to it for six months because in ontario another month or two he's by that car unless unless the roads are clean and dry it's not going out all right so thank you so much anthony for uh, writing me and contact me okay let's get to our question here and farmer b is correct many new gasoline engines have both pfi and di direct injection fuel systems di has the benefit has benefits but since the fuel is introduced directly into the cylinder the intake valves will build deposits from camshaft overlap and the oil fumes with the pfi a detergent in the fuel can be used to keep the valves clean also a phenomena called low speed pre-ignition lpsi or lspi uh, has the potential to break the ring land from the piston converse to conventional wisdom this is evoked with the, with direct injection under light load when the engine is not fully warmed up so the reason why they have pfi port and di in a lot of these engines is that both fuel delivery system has its benefits and has its weakness but mostly 
They first were just running DI engines, but they had problems with this low-speed pre-ignition and a lot of carbon deposits being built up on the valve, and there was no way for you to put a chemical treatment in the tank or the gasoline to clean the carbon deposits off the back of the intake valve because the intake valve only saw air going past it, and then the oil fumes and what have you in the cylinder during camshaft overlap were causing a lot of deposits to form. So with the PFI and DI system and a top goes back and forth between the two all right so it usually idles on the pfi and then goes into the di so uh so direct injection so it starts and idles off of the pfi so if you have a engine could be in your wife's suv your car your pickup truck and it has a pfi and a di system that is why but it would be imperative for you to use and you know in certain driving scenarios i mean rural america is going to be hard to keep those valves clean because most of the time you live on a ranch in montana you come out of your lane onto the two lane and you're driving 20 miles into town 30 miles into town this thing is going to be on di and you'll never clean the valves so they have a lot of products that you could actually spray into the intake manifold while the engine is running to get those deposits off if you live in an area where you could where the engine spends more time at idle or a light load then the then the fuel cleaner will definitely definitely work but it's going to take a couple of tankfuls because it's all going to be predicated upon how much time you have that it's running on pfi everything is acronyms today confusing as anything all right so listen i want to thank you so much for uh for, for listening to this tuning in and listening to this guy from new jersey and i want you to know that the hot rod farmer is pulling for you the American farmer and rancher and all farmers and people around the world. All right, and my beloved America, have a blessed day and I'll catch you next time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.